when you're not speaking, we just ask to keep yourself on mute so we don't get too much background noise and we can all hear each other. Um, if you prefer, you can put your comments or your questions in the chat or if you're watching on Facebook Live in the Facebook comments and I'll bring them to the Zoom. Um, and I will be sharing the sources on screen from Safaria, but of course you are welcome and encouraged to keep uh, keep up in your Tanakh or your own Safaria, if you prefer. And uh, I think with that, over to you, Rabbi Silva. Okay, thank you. Okay, good. Um, we're up to chapter 46. At the end of chapter 45, uh, the brothers come back from uh, Egypt and they inform their father, Yaakov, that Yosef is still alive. At first, he doesn't believe them. He's uh, can't believe them. Towards the end of chapter 45. But then he sees the wagons that uh, it says Yosef sent the wagons, Parawat sent the wagons, the Agolot. And his spirits were revived. And Yaakov says in the last uh, Pasuk of chapter 45, so he's convinced that Yosef, in fact, is alive. He wants to see Joseph before he dies. So clearly Yaakov is going down to Egypt, but it's not clear whether he's going down permanently or he's going down to settle there for a while. Joseph had said there's a family for a few more years. So it's not clear whether he intends to stay there for a short amount of time, maybe for five years. But there's no sense, certainly, that he intends just to move there forever, because his stated, <laughs> stated purpose in going is to see Yosef. See Yosef, talk to Yosef, whatever, be with Yosef, but there's no sense that this is a permanent move. That's the end of chapter 45. We're now in the beginning of chapter 46. This is one of the critical, one of the critical, um, situations, one of the critical stories in the book of Breshit, right in the beginning of chapter 46. So I want to spend a fair amount of time on the first few verses of chapter 46. So let's begin now with Perik Mem Vav. It says, So Jacob, who here is called Israel, and as we had noted in the past, uh, it's not 100% clear why the text shifts back and forth from Jacob to Israel, but certainly the name Israel does appear at critical moments in the book. And this is one of those critical moments. Yaakov is about to go down to Egypt. In fact, we know, whether Yaakov knows at this point or not, but we know he's going down there. He's going to come back after he dies, but the rest of the family will remain there and ultimately be enslaved there for many years until they're redeemed in the book of uh, Shemot, in the next book. So it's one of these critical moments. So he's called Yisrael over here. He takes everything with him, he seems to take his whole household with him. We remember that Yosef had told the brothers, tell my father to come down, to bring his family with him and all he possesses, which is what Yaakov seems to do. Paro, on the other hand, had said to, uh, his message was, don't worry about your, your, your material goods. You'll, you'll have all the goods of, of Egypt. We have spoken about that. That Paro's vision is to bring Yaakov down to Egypt with the family 
and to be assimilated some way into Mitzrayim. Whereas Yosef's suggestion, bring everything with you, and you'll be in the land of Goshen near me, that suggests something very different, that they're going to come and somehow maintain their identity as, as Jacob, as Israel, as Jacob's children, as Joseph's brothers. And that entails bringing everything with them. And it sounds like in the first verse of chapter 46 that the Yaakov is following the plan of Yosef. So he takes everything with him, but he makes a stop along the way. Before he goes down to Egypt, he makes a stop in Beersheba. He brought sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. So this verse has already has several very important details that we have to uh, examine. The first of them is he goes to Beersheba. Let's start with that. Now, there's a history in this book of Beersheba. Actually, Beersheba has appeared in several places. It appears, firstly, at the end of chapter 21. That's where Avram goes to Beersheba. He plants a tree in Beersheba. He calls out to, to the eternal God in Beersheba. Uh, he lives in the land of the Philistines for many years. Beersheba isn't, on one hand, in the land of the Philistines. On the other hand, the Chumash makes a point at the end of chapter 21 that whereas Beersheba is in Eretz Plishtim, Yamim Rabim, it's in the land of the Plishtim. On the other hand, Beersheba is a place that Avram establishes his own space. Avimelech comes to him, and Avram says to Avimelech, Can you take these seven uh, lambs that I set aside for you as witness that I dug the well at Beersheba? And the place is named Beersheba. They take an oath of mutual consideration at the end of chapter 21. So Beersheba in that chapter is a funny story, funny place. On one hand, it's in the land of the Philistines, Eretz Plishtim. On the other hand, it seems like a space that has, that has Avraham's imprimatur on it. That's actually very interesting. I'm not gonna get into that right now, but that's where we first appeared. That's, the, that's where Beersheba, first comes up, the very end of chapter 21. Now, what happens in chapter 22? After we're told that Avram planted a tree, he lived, lived there for many years, he called there to the eternal God, not just to God, but the El Olam, the eternal God. And what is the next verse right after that? Well, the next verse is the beginning of chapter 22, chapter we're all familiar with. Achar after these things. After Abraham has settled fully into Beersheba, so God said to Abraham, Elohim saw to Abraham, God tested Abraham, and God says to Abraham, go to the place that I will, I will tell you. Leave, leave your place and go to the place that I will show you. I'm going to direct you towards my chosen place, not Beersheba. So Abraham agrees. He follows God's command. He leaves Beersheba and he sets out for the Akedah. That's the first time we encounter Beersheba. Later, Avram returns to Beersheba without Yitzhak. It would appear he returns to Beersheba. Then we have Beersheba again. That's in chapter 21. Then we have Beersheba once again at the end of chapter 26. At the end of chapter 26, once again, it's this time it's Yitzhak with Avimelech, the king of the Philistines who comes out to Yitzchak, who has been kicked out of the land of the Philistines. And he greets Yitzchak. Yitzchak says, why have you come to me? 
And Abimelech says at the end of chapter 26 to make a treaty with you. We've been very good to you. You shouldn't harm us, etc. And they have an agreement. They make an agreement. Afterwards, Isaac's people dig a well and they name the well Beersheba. That's where we have Beersheba again. Now, what's interesting is that right after that, if you look at the very end of chapter 26, we spoke about this in the past. There it says that right after we're told about Beersheba in chapter 26, we're told about Esau and Esau's wives. Esau marries two Canaanite women. When he's 40 years old, Vaikachi Shoat Yehudit Bat Beriachiti, Yet Posmat Batelon Achiti. So he marries these two Canaanite women, Hittites, part of the people of Canaan. And right after that, after those two verses, we have the story of the transfer of the blessing from Yitzchak to one of his sons. He intends to bless Esau. He calls his son in. Esau says, Hineni. Yitzchak says, I'm very old. I don't know when I'm going to die. Go out to the field, hunt, get some food, prepare the food for me in order that I bless you before I die. When we studied uh, those chapters, you may recall, I, I pointed out, actually my wife pointed out many years ago, that there's something really interesting about the way it's structured. And that is that in the first Beersheba story of Abraham, which is the end of chapter 21, the story right after Beersheba, right after we're told about Beersheba, and Abraham dwelling in Beersheba for many years, the next verse has God telling Abraham, leave where you are, pick yourself up, and go to the place that I will tell you. So Beersheba is the place from which Avram leaves to go to the Akedah. And the point of the Akedah, we studied one of the many points of the Akedah, it's in the Akedah that the blessing of Abraham is transferred to Isaac. It's in the Akedah we discover that Isaac is the covenantal child, and all the blessings of Abraham are through this child, Isaac. It's a transfer story. It's one of the main features of the Akedah. So you leave Beersheba, the place from which you leave, and then there's the story of transfer. That's transfer story number one in the book of Breshit. Where is transfer story number two in the book of Breshit? Well, transfer story number two, obviously, is when the blessing is to be transferred from Isaac to one of his sons. In fact, he calls his son, his older son in, Beno HaGadol, Bini, and Isaac said, and Esau says, Hineni. He says, listen, go out to the field and bring back some food, and that will be the medium that will enable me to bless you. Now, preceding that, at transfer story number two, Lo and behold, we have Beersheba. We once again have Beersheba. That's towards the end of chapter 26. Can, right? By Shavu and by Kroto Shiva, Alkein Shemaya Beersheba, chapter 26, verse number uh, 33. And if it would follow the pattern of the first transfer story, we have Beersheba followed by the transfer. What is very interesting. And again, Devorah said this many years ago, what's interesting is that something, something interrupts 
between Be'er Sheva and the transfer, we have mention of Esav marrying two Canaanite women. And the point is, that is out of place. It actually, you don't expect to see that. You expect Be'er Sheva transfer. The fact that it's out of place, something which is, seems to be out of place, that increases the significance of what we read. So in point of fact, what the Chumash seems to be saying is, listen, it's gonna be a transfer. But before we make the transfer, says the Chumash, let's get one thing very clear. It can't be Esav. Esav is out of, the, out of the question. It cannot be Esav. And by the way, the reason it can't be Esav, let me just uh, add a, a detail, which is important. The reason it can't be Esav is not because marrying the Canaanite women is a sin. You did a bad thing in marrying a Canaanite. That's not the reason. The reason is very simply that the covenantal blessing of Genesis takes place over three and then a fourth generation. So if the covenant, if I, if Esau would be the covenantal recipient of the blessing, his children would be Canaanites or half Canaanites. And since the blessing, the covenantal blessing, a piece of it is to, sub, to capture Canaan, it's not possible that, you're, that the covenantal recipients would be, would be Canaanites at all. That's not possible. That would contradict the, the covenant. So therefore, Esau is out of the question. Whatever you think of Esau, it doesn't matter now. He's out of it, cannot happen. Of course, the point of chapter 27 is, I know it can't be Esau, but for goodness sake, could it possibly be the manipulative and deceptive Yaakov? That's the question of the Chumash. In any event, for our purposes now, we have two transfer stories and Beersheba is the place from which you leave. That's in chapter 26, and that's the Akedah. And then you have Beersheba again. This time, not with Abraham or Isaac, but with Yaakov. Beersheba appears in chapter 28. After Jacob has deceived his blind father and taking the blessing that Yitzchak had intended to give to Esau, then at the end of chapter, the beginning of chapter 28, he gets another blessing. Um, it's the same blessing reformulated, but this time Isaac speaks about the blessing of Abraham and he instructs him to leave the land and to go marry non-Canaanites, go back to my wife's family, the family of Rivka, and take from there a wife from your, from your mother's family. Go to the house of Lavan, take from there a wife. That's the beginning of chapter 28. And Yaakov sets out to do that. By Yetzeh Yaakov, Yaakov leaves. He leaves for two reasons. He's running away from Esau, but he's leaving for a different reason. Because he wants to, he has to marry from his wife's family in order to be viable, eligible for the covenantal blessing. So where is the place from which he leaves? By Yetzeh Yaakov mi Beersheba. He leaves Beersheba. He leaves from Beersheba and where does he go? He goes to the house of Lavan. And those who studied in these sessions, uh, together with me, the story of Jacob in the house of Lavan, we all know that the experience of Jacob in the house of Lavan is fundamentally parallel to the experience of the Jews in the land of Egypt. We spoke about it some length. The language is the same, the story is the same. It's the same story, basically. The one who understood this very well, before we understand it, is the anonymous author of probably the most, most read book in the Jewish uh, world today, which is called the Haggadah Shal Pesach. 
the Haggadah, of course, makes that point. Right in the very beginning of the Jerashot for the Seder, Go and learn what Ravan, the Aramean, did to our father Jacob. Pharaoh decreed against the boys, throw the boys into the river. But Ravan would have uprooted everything. So right away in the Haggadah, you have virtually an explicit connection and parallel between Ravan and, and Pharaoh between that Jacob's experience in the house of Lavan and Israel's experience in the land of Egypt. I'm not gonna go through all the parallels. They are quite obviously there. We may touch upon one of them later. So that, that's the story. Jacob leaves to Beersheba. Jacob may think he's gonna escape his brother and he's gonna find a wife. His brother actually will come back and I'll call for you in a few days, she said. But we know it's not a few days, it's 20 years. And he leaves under great pressure, he runs away. He steals away in the night. Lavan chases after him, intending to harm him. God intervenes and protects Jacob. It's the story of the Exodus. Very timely story for us, a couple of weeks before Pesach. And that's Jacob leaves from Beersheba. Now let's, let's, now let's get back to Avers, chapter 46. Chapter 46. Yisai Yisrael v'chorashalol so Jacob's going down to Egypt. He thinks, perhaps, initially, he's going down for a short while to see his son Joseph. He doesn't yet know why he's going down there, but God will shortly inform him. But he leaves from Beersheba. Now, the significance of this cannot be underestimated. This is incredibly important because the Torah is setting up straight out is that Jacob leaving to Laban's house and Jacob leaving to Egypt are parallel stories, which of course is what the Haggadah picks up. It's what the Haggadah is saying. The Haggadah says that the experience in Egypt, the suffering in Egypt, it wasn't the first time it happened actually. There was in a sense a suffering, an Egyptian kind of suffering even before we ever got to Egypt. That's the story of Yaakov in the house of Laban. Then the Haggadah says later on in the Haggadah, it could happen again. It could happen in every generation. It's possible. This covenant that we have stands for all generations. The experience of Mitzrayim is not a one-time thing. It could happen again in the future. It may well happen in the future. And of course, prior to that, it makes the point that it's already happened in the past. That's the story of Yaakov in the house of Laban. Now, this is not a small detail, but one of extreme significance, which I'll come to in a minute. It's a very important point. Now, before we continue, I just want to say the following, that if one enters into this chapter with this knowledge, then what we expect to find are parallels between what God said to Jacob the first time in Beersheba in chapter 28, and what God will speak, say to Jacob in chapter 46. It's a very short speech. It's not a long speech, but we expect to find parallels between those two speeches. And I will tell you in advance, we're not going to be disappointed because they are very parallel. These are parallel speeches. What is the significance of this? The significance is, among other things, that Yaakov 
is going to be presented with, again, a parallel speech, which connects in the mind of us, the reader, but presumably also in the mind of Yaakov, a simple understanding that Yaakov is going down to Mitzrayim to experience the same kind of situation that Yaakov experienced in the house of Lavan. What's interesting, of course, is both the experience of Yaakov in the house of Lavan and the experience of Israel in Egypt. There are three words that appear centrally in both of those two experiences. In chapter 31 and chapter 32 of our book, the Yaakov refers to his experience in the house of Lavan as slavery, avdut, as inui, as suffering, and later in Lavan Garti as gerut. Gerut, avdut, and inui, which are the three covenantal terms in the book of Genesis. When Abraham said, through what shall I possess the land? This covenantal connection, two-sided commitment. I understand your commitment, God, to give us, to give me an heir and give us land. What is our commitment? You should know what your commitment is. Your descendants will be strangers, enslaved, and oppressed. That's your commitment. And now the question is, this commitment of enslavement of stranger and uh, slavery, etc. Is that something that just happens to you? Or is it something you actually accept prior to the fact? And here in this chapter 46 is the one place you can actually read the chapter as Yaakov understanding what he's getting, what, it, what, what, what awaits him. The parallel to the house of Laban is significant because Yaakov does not go down as an innocent to Mitzrayim. God's gonna essentially, and the context informs Yaakov what awaits him. He knows what awaits him having suffered at once, having been imprisoned, as it were, in the house of Lavan, and only with great difficulty managing to escape, and God intervenes, and God says, leave, and God protects them on the way. But apart from that, maybe Yaakov can't get out from the house of Lavan. Lavan's place is very, very dangerous for Yaakov. It's dangerous for a bunch of reasons. And one of them is that Lavan actually, unlike, say, Paro, Lavan is more like Avimelech. Lavan is a person, Paro was just a bad guy, but Lavan and Avimelech, his kindred spirit, they're different. They present themselves as, 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 as moral people. They talk a lot of morality. Avimelech, you said that she's your sister. How could you do this to me? He says to God, I'm a tzaddik, would you slay even a tzaddik, even a righteous man like me? And he said, and she said, and I got problems with you, frankly, God. Now, of course, the point is, and this is a very important point that many have missed, it's the very taking of Sarah herself, itself, that act of taking Sarah, it's not consensual, which immediately, straight out, renders Avimelech one of the bad guys. But he presents this moral line, how could you do this, Abraham, Isaac, how could you do this? Someone might have sinned, great sin. He gives speeches, the whole community, no one should touch this woman. So he's, the, he's very dangerous, Lovin is very similar. Lovin is, is really the kindred spirits in a sense. That's probably the meaning of Lovin, Vikesh, Lako, Esako. Lovin is the ultimate deceiver. But Jacob has deception in him too. That's why Lovin is so dangerous because there's a Lovin inside Jacob, which he has to figure out how to, how, how to manage. My point is that going to Beersheba now means suggest to us, and I think we can strengthen the suggestion as well, 
that Yaakov goes down to Egypt knowing what awaits ahead of him. So he enters into the covenant with a full realization of what awaits. We'll come back to this point later, if not today, when we, when we resume. It's a very important point. That's, that's the Be'er Sheva story. Now there's something else. Let's, before we get to something else, he brought Zvachim. Now what are Zvachim? So a Zevach is a sacrifice. In fact, we call the place of sacrifice a Mizbeach. It's where the animal is actually sacrificed. The slaughtered animal is brought on, on, the, on the Mizbeach. But in the Torah, we, we're actually starting to read in the synagogues now the book of Ayikra. And the book of Ayikra talks about different kinds of sacrifices. In the book of Genesis, in, in Sefer Breshit, the sacrifices that are, seem to be brought in the book of Breshit are not a Zebach. They are what is called an, an, an Olah, an elevation offering, a fully burnt offering. The Olah is a sacrifice that is totally given to God. When Noah leaves the ark, back in Parashat Noah, he emerges from the ark and he brings olot, he brings burnt sacrifices. At the binding of Isaac, God said to Abraham, take your son Isaac, your only son, the one you love, right? And bring him up as a burnt offering. You're not going to eat part of that sacrifice, it's wholly consumed. When Abraham brings the ram instead of Isaac, Right? He brought him, he brought the ram as a burnt offering. A zevach is different. A zevach is a sacrifice. Sometimes it's called the shramim. But a zevach is a sacrifice, number one, that the one who brings it eats part of it. And secondly, because it's eaten, it typically is a sacrifice, or at least in one case for sure, that is shared by people. Because you're not going to eat a whole animal by yourself. You're going to share it. In fact, the most prominent Zevach in the Bible, Zevach Pesach. Zevach Pesach Hashem. The carbon Pesach is a Zevach. Why? Because it's eaten. And not only is it eaten, but it's eaten by a group of people. The Torah spends a lot of time telling us that the, you should make sure every, that the whole sacrifice can be eaten. The whole family should eat it. If the family's not big enough to eat it, you call your next door neighbor. Everybody has to eat the best. Pesach sacrifice is actually unique in that sense. It actually must be eaten. Other sacrifices, eating it is permissible, not necessarily mandatory. If you didn't eat it, the sacrifice is kosher. Okay, you didn't do it the best possible way. The carbon Pesach is different in that sense. It has to be eaten. So that's the Zevach. So now we have over here, when Jacob goes down, he brings by he brought burnt offerings to the God of his father, Isaac. Let's leave Isaac out for a minute. Why is it a Zebach? By the way, the word Zebach appears in another context, not in the book of Genesis, but in the next book of the Torah. When Moshe says to Paro, we want to serve God together in the desert. Let us go out for a three days journey into the desert to serve God. And Paro first says, well, you can take the older people, not the younger people. He says, you can, uh, you can take the people, but, but you can't take the, but the animals maybe should stay behind. And Moshe says to Paro, Gamatot, Hashem, 
you, you Paro, should give us zvachim v'yalot, animals for burnt offering, and also zvachim. So why? Because Moshe's point, why, why zvachim? Why not just olot? Why not give God the burnt offerings? Because Moshe's point is, whether he says it's the power or not, but his point is that before we leave Egypt, we have to become a people with our own identity. We have to serve God together, communally together. And that's the Zebach. So over here, there's no point to walk out of Egypt with a bunch of slaves. We want to leave as the beginning of nationhood. That's the Zebach. So over here, perhaps by Yizbach Zebachim, because what the Torah is anticipating is Jacob's role in going down to Egypt is to build the nation. The book of Genesis is about the family and building the family. That's Jacob's struggle to build the family. But, over, but it's not just the family, it's the family as the, the seeds of the model for the nation. So the idea of being Zavachi makes a lot of sense because the Zevach is a kind of, kind of communal sacrifice in the sense that people can, different people can partake of the sacrifice. So that's the Zvachim. And then now one last word before I stop and take comments or questions. Very striking is he brought sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now that is extremely odd. Why would it be to the God of his father, Isaac? He brought sacrifices to God. He brought sacrifices to the God of Abraham and Isaac. So why specifically by Yisbach Zvachim so I think the simple idea here is, simplest idea is the following. What Jacob is about to do, there, there are two ideas I want to mention. One is that Jacob is about to leave the land. He's about go, to go down to Egypt, to leave, to leave the land. And the first time he left the land at his father's instructions, his father said to him, go, Presumably for a short while, but go get a wife from get a wife from your mother's family. That was back in chapter 27, 20, chapter 28. But Isaac himself never leaves the land. Isaac was gonna leave the land. He was then thinking of going to Egypt in chapter 26, but as you all remember, God said to Isaac, do not leave, stay in the land. And Isaac stays in the land of the Pushtim, in the in the it was one of these liminal places. Don't go to Mitzrayim. And now Jacob is about not just to go personally to Mitzrayim, but to take the family to Mitzrayim. And not because of the famine. There is a famine, but he can get food from Egypt. He has a he has protexia. He has the lifeline to food in Egypt. He's going down, he says why, I'm going down to see my son Joseph. And he's taking everything with him, all his possessions, all his family. That's problematic to leave the land. So he brings sacrifices to the God of Isaac as if to say, with your permission. I know leaving the land is problematic, but with your permission, I speak to you as the God who, who told Isaac not to leave the land. And in effect, I ask your permission whether or not I can leave the land. And, 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 and under what conditions I should leave. So that's one possible, uh, one possible thought over here. But I'll come back to another thought when we get to the next verse. But before I get to the next verse, are there any comments or questions? If you have a comment or question, just unmute yourself and ask. 
If not, I'll continue. That's no problem. There'll be another break for questions as well, for people. And Gershon, was that a question? You mentioned. I'm not hearing. You mentioned that uh, Abraham was was Melech was Melech Mishplishtim, but he was also Melech Gerar, whose root is Gur to sojourn, a place to sojourn rather than to live in, maybe. Right. No, I, I mentioned that Abraham um, Abraham does stay does does live in Gerar. That is true. Uh, but eventually he moves to Beersheba. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, yeah, whether he lives there permanently or not, actually in the Chumash, it appears that Avram's main location is actually Hebron. Because later it says, when uh, Jacob comes back in chapter, when Jacob comes back in chapter 35, he says he goes to Hebron, the city in which Avraham and Yitzchak live. <coughs> and we know that Sarah dies in, in Hebron and is buried in Hebron, Maratamach Pelah. So, how long he stayed in the land of the Philistines is not clear in Beersheba. His permanent location is Hebron, but he does go to Beersheba and he leaves from Beersheba. That much is, is certainly the case. Um, let me continue with the next pasuk and then I'll take stop and take some more questions. Well, I spoke a bit about this when we studied chapter 27. And now this verse is very significant. God appeared to Jacob in a vision of the night. And God says, Yaakov, Yaakov, Jacob, Jacob, not once but twice. And Jacob says, here I am. Before I get to this, which is very critical, obviously, I want to make a different suggestion. I make the suggestion in my recent book about kingship, Mahut Adam, that perhaps the, the reason for the sacrifice, or maybe one of the reasons for the sacrifice, is that through the sacrifice, Yaakov is hoping to have some kind of revelation. I mentioned this in the context, if you remember, in the book of Shmuel, uh, Shmuel instructs Saul, whom he has just met and told he's going to be the king, he says, you're going to go to Gilgal, wait for me for seven days. I will bring the sacrifice and I will tell you what to do. And then he doesn't show up. I mean, seven days are passing and he, seven days are over and he doesn't show up. So Saul brings the sacrifice himself. Two sacrifices. I think, again, a Zevach and a Shlamim, both. And after, it's interesting, it's similar to here. And after the first sacrifice, Shmuel shows up. Why is he late? We'll never know. Was the train late or was he purposely coming late to test Saul? In any event, Saul has brought one of the sacrifices. Shmuel says, what have you done? I told you to wait for me. Or you didn't show up. And I was worried. I was concerned. I didn't want to go to war without bringing the sacrifices first. And Shmuel says, you're a fool. You didn't obey the word of God. Not that God ever told him this. Shmuel told him this. And now you, I thought you might be successful and you will fail and Shmuel checks out. Now I'm not gonna get into Shmuel and Shaul's relationship, etc. Talk about that in the book at great length. But my point is that perhaps Saul misunderstood why Shmuel wants to bring the sacrifice. Saul thinks 
you can't go to war without bringing sacrifices. They're so important. Later on, who, in the battle against Amalek, he will say, well, we took the animals to bring sacrifices. And Shmuel says, God doesn't care about your sacrifices. God cares about obedience. But perhaps the reason Shmuel said, I'll bring the sacrifices and the burnt offering and the, and the zebach is precisely for what we have over here. What Shmuel is saying is, I'll bring a sacrifice. And through the sacrifice, I hope to have a revelation. And we have that elsewhere in the Bible. You know where else we have it? The story of Bilam. Bilam says to Balak, bring the sacrifices and I will go and perhaps God will be revealed to me. So sacrifice as a medium of, of revelation. That's what I suggest over there. And perhaps that was, that's what we have over here as well. He brings sacrifices with the hope that God will appear to Jacob. And God, in fact, does appear to Jacob in the vision of the night. Just as God appeared to Jacob in the first Beersheba story in chapter 28, Jacob goes to sleep. He's very tired. There he doesn't realize what the place is. He's just tired. The sun is setting. He's tired. He goes to sleep. And God appears to Jacob in a dream. And God speaks to Jacob in a dream. And Jacob sees the angels ascending and descending the staircase to heaven. Over here, we have God speaking to Jacob. Vayomer Yaakov, Yaakov. Vayomer Hineni. Okay. And Jacob said, Hineni. Now, we all know that the word Hineni is one of those words that actually, if one divorces Hineni from the biblical text, Hineni is Hineani, I'm here. It's not a word that it would appear to have any great significance, but in the context of the Chumash, especially Sefer Breshit, it has great significance. If we encounter it at the, at the Akedah, Avraham, right? Avraham Vayomer Hineni. In fact, Hineni appears three times at the Akedah. When, the, when God addresses Abraham, when the angel addresses Abraham, and when Isaac addresses Abraham, in those three cases, he says, Hineni. We also have it later in the next book of the Bible, in Sefer Shemot, at the burning bush. Moshe, Moshe, Vayomer Hineni. Story of the burning bush, the revelation of the snap. And we have it over here as well. Yaakov, Yaakov, Vayomer Hineni. So I wanted to repeat what I mentioned to you in my wife's name uh, when we studied chapter 27. It's one of the things in her book she wrote as a, as a very, very young person, which I've mentioned several times. I think it's terrific. And I want to mention it again. And that is her point, among other things, her point was this. Chapter 27, that's how I began today, is a transfer story. It's where Isaac intends to transfer his blessing to one of his sons. He thinks it's going to be Asaph. He tells Ace, go out to the field. You're a hunter. Prepare me some food, and I will bless you. When Yitzchak calls Esav in, when Yitzchak calls Esav in, so he says to Esav, I may die soon. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about this. But before he gets to the details, he calls Esav, Vayomer Hineni. And Esav says in chapter 27, right in the beginning of chapter 27, he says, Hineni. You want to pull it up on the screen, you'll see it. Chapter 27. Esav says, Hineni. Right? Vayomer love Hineni. Chapter 27, verse number one. He doesn't know what his father wants. The same way Abraham doesn't know what God wants in chapter 22. Avraham, Vayomer Hineni. And then in the second verse, God says, take your son, your only son, bring him as a sacrifice. Hineni means I am here for you. Before you tell me what it is, doesn't matter. Whatever you say to me, I'm going to do. That's Abraham's relationship with God in chapter 22 at the Akedah. 
And that is Isaac, Esau's relationship to his father. Esau venerates his father, respects his father, loves his father. He'll do whatever his father wants. And that's the Hineni. So Hineni, in the story of the binding of Isaac, in that transfer story, Hineni is, 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 is a key word. Abraham says Hineni. Now, what does God say to Abraham in chapter 22? What is God's command to Abraham in chapter 22? God's command to Abraham in chapter 22 has three key words. One word is, we study this. One word is, see in the second verse, starts with the word kach, take. Take your son, your only son. And the next is lech lecha, lech go. And the third is halei, you'll bring him up as a sacrifice. Those are the three key words. So kach, lech, and ha'aleh. In verse number three of, of chapter 22, what does Abraham do? He gets up early in the morning. He saddles his, his donkey. He takes the two young men together with Isaac. He hews the wood for the sacrifice. He can't bring the sacrifice because he has to find the place that God has told him. But he already prepares himself right away. Vayokom Vayelech and Vayelech, he goes. So we have Abraham, Kach, Lech, and Haleu in the very next verse. We have the Kach, we have the Lech, we can't yet have the, have the Haleu, but we have Vayivaka at Seola. By the way, later on, when the angel, if you scroll down a bit, and the angel says to Abraham, do not do it, you pass the test, keep scrolling down, a few more verses down. Scroll down, text, keep going, keep going, keep going. Keep going, keep going, keep going. After the angel speaks, keep going. Yeah, stop. One second, stop. Verse number 11. He's, Isaac is bound on the altar. He's about taking the knife. He's about to slaughter him. And the angel calls down, Avraham, Avraham. And again, Abraham says, yes, Hineni. Avraham, Avraham is a sense of alacrity. He, he got his passion before he actually slaughters him. He's going to kill him. He's going to sacrifice him. Avram, Avraham, Hineni. Al Tishlach, don't do it. You passed the test. You've done, you, you passed the test, 100%. Verse number, thir verse number 13. So Abraham lifts up his eyes. He sees a ram. He looks up. His eyes see a ram. Afterwards, see a ram entangled in the brush. So what does Abraham do? What verbs do we have? Lech, kach, and haleu. It's exactly the three words of God's command. Kach, lech, and haleu. And the angel says, don't do it. You've passed the test. I now know you are a God-fearing person. Now, of course, obviously, anybody who reads this with two eyes in their head and is willing to dismiss the uh, incredible amount of nonsense that's written about the Akeda, understands that what the Akeda is about is about a human being's perfect fulfillment of God's command. I mean, God says it, you pass the test by doing what I want you to do. You were willing to do it, of course. But the point is, even without that, the very fact that the description of Abraham's behavior is exactly identical to the language of the command can point us in only one direction. We have a perfect fulfillment. The fact that we are bothered by the idea that Abram would be willing to sacrifice his child 
uh, at God's command, that's a good question that we would deal with if you study the Akeda. But it's incontrovertible that from the Torah's standpoint, they don't see, the Torah is not bothered in one whit by the fact that Abraham would, if, 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 if not stop, have sacrificed his son. That is obvious to anybody who, just, who can read. So I'm not even gonna discuss that now, but it's obvious. Anyway, here's the point. Now let's get to Devorah's point, which is not obvious, which is this, that in the Akedah story, you have God and Abraham. Those are the two main players over here. Isaac is the intended sacrifice. Exactly what role he plays, that's a good question, but he's not a main player. The main players are Abraham and God. The language of God, God commands. God's command is kach and lech. Kach and lech, that's God's command. And Abraham's response, is three times, is hineni. I will do what you say. Now, there are many other questions about the Akedah, not getting into that now. I'm not talking about moral questions, I'm talking about other kinds of questions, which are very interesting without studying the Akedah. But now when we get to chapter 27, this is Devorah's point. When you get to chapter 27, here's what's interesting. That in chapter 27, back to 27 now, Isaac calls in his son, Esau. He says, Bini, my son, Vayomer Elov Hineni. And, and, and Esau says Hineni. Hineni is the, is, is the word of transfer. Hineni is the word that allows the person, the central character in the story, to receive, to receive the blessing. That's what Abraham said, Hineni, both to God, to the angel, to Isaac, that's Hineni. Now Isaac commands him to go out. If you read the command of Isaac, you have many different verbs. One is saw, saw or take, carry or take. Say, go out to the field. Suda, hunt. Verse number four, I say, make me. Havia, bring. All these verbs. Okay. Meanwhile, Rebecca's hearing what's going on in verse number five, scroll down a bit. And now she, she speaks to Jacob. I heard what your father said to Asaph, scroll down some more. Now, verse number, Verse number eight, you listen to me. You listen to what I tell you, right? You obey what I, you listen to my voice. There's more to say about that. I I'm, I'm gonna, can't get into all the details yet, but this is what she focused on. She says to Jacob, go to, go to the flock. And take for me from there two goats. I'll prepare the food your father likes. You'll bring it to him and he'll bless you before he dies. So what is, what is, what is Rebecca's language? What are the verbs that she uses? Lech and kach. Exactly the language of God at the Akedah. She's got the language down. Now we have Jacob's response. Abraham's response was Hidemi. That's Esau's response. By Yom Yaakov el Rivka. Imo, hein esav ochi ishtoir. Hein, look here. Hein, hein is the opposite of hineni. Hein means I can't do it. Look here. Behold, my brother is hairy, and I'm 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 smooth. Maybe my father will feel me, touch me, and I'll bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. So it's a refusal. 
he doesn't refuse to go on moral grounds, by the way. He says, we might get caught. So his mother says to him in the next verse, So she repeats, now listen to me. So her speech is framed by two words, it's also framed by the words, the phrase Shema B'Koli, which by the way, you have at the Akeda. Abraham, you are to be blessed. Why? In other words, we all know it's a transfer story. Well, at least we know now it's a transfer story. But what she pointed out was this. There are four characters in chapter 27. Two of them fit exactly into the right model. That is, there's someone who says he nani who could receive the blessing. That's Isaac's son, Esau. But, but Esau has been disqualified already. Those are the last two verses of chapter 26. He has Canaanite women, forget about it. He's not in the game. But he's got the language. He's got the Hineni. Then we have Rebecca. She says, Kach and Lech, twice, actually. Kach, Lech, and I would even throw in Shema B'Koli. She has the language down. What do you mean the language? What does it mean the language? The language means the understanding of the nature of the blessing. She understands the blessing perfectly. And Asaph is willing to do anything to get the blessing. But here's the problem. The problem is that Asaph has been disqualified be before the get-go. Asaph's out of the picture. So we see Nani has no significance. And Rebecca understands it perfectly. But the blessing in Genesis is from father to son. She understands it perfectly, but she can't transfer the blessing because the blessing was given essentially to Isaac. Yes, indirectly to Rebecca. But the blessing is Isaac received from Abraham. That's the blessing he's got to pass down. The problem is, and this is our argument, he doesn't have the language. What do we not have the language? He doesn't understand the blessing he possesses. That's her claim. Others have a different read of the, of, of the story. I'm with her a thousand percent. He doesn't yet understand the blessing. So in order to correct the situation, to correct it, two things have to happen. One is that Isaac has to get the language right. That is to say, has to understand it. The lech and kach. And Jacob has to say hineni. Now, as far as Isaac getting it right, he gets it right. He gets it right in the beginning of chapter 28. Because at the beginning of chapter, because Rebecca intervenes and says, listen, she says to her husband, Isaac, if, if, if Jacob will marry a Canaanite woman, I, 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 we can't take it. It's not, it's not for us. He can't marry the Canaanite women. So Isaac calls Jacob in. He blesses him. Notice the word he blesses him. Remember Spicer, the critic Spicer, says, we called him in. No, no, no. It's like, just call him in. It's not, it's not a neutral word over here. He says, and the next verse, we can write it ourselves, but I'll read it. What does he say to Jacob? And now we have got the language. So the next two verses means he also understands it. El Shaddai, that, that's the name that God uses with the covenantal blessing, El Shaddai, should bless you. You become a company of nations. And the next verse, and God should give you the blessing of Abraham to, to inherit the land of his sojournings that God gave to Abraham 
He's got it perfect over here. He understands exactly the blessing he possesses with Rebecca's intercession. But once Rebecca says the Canaanite women, oh, oh, I get it now. This is Ab oh, yes, I remember. This is Abraham's blessing. So you're the one who has to get it because Esau's married the Canaanite women, so he's disqualified. So what's missing here? What's missing is the Hineni. Isaac corrects, but what about Jacob? We still need the Hineni. So here, let me say here, there are two points about the Hineni. We have, of course, Hineni. The reason I mention all of this, I happen to love this interpretation. Um, uh, agree with it 10,000%. And of course, our chapter, Jacob will say Hineni. And we also understand why it's to the, to the sacrifices to his father Isaac. Because what was missing in the story is Jacob receiving the blessing from Yitzchak. We're talking about the blessing from father to son, from Isaac to, 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 uh, to his son. Now, Esau had said Hineni, but he's the wrong guy. Yaakov has to say Hineni. It's in chapter 46 where Yaakov says Hineni. But there is an additional wrinkle over here which I want to mention. And that is, this I don't remember if Dvorah said, I'll, I'll add it. And that is, it's not the first Hineni. Actually, Jacob says Hineni before this. Not in chapter 28, but he says Hineni in chapter 31. If you go back to chapter 31, actually, let's find this verse. It's when Jacob is determined to leave the house of Ramon for two reasons. First of all, God told him to leave. And second of all, he sees Lovin's face and he hears Lovin's children talking and he realizes he's in danger. He's manipulated the flocks of Lovin to become wealthy. Now he's in danger. So he calls his wives out to the field and he talks to them. And he says to them, I had a dream. Now we have no, there's no evidence that he actually had this dream, but let's say he did have the dream. Early the Torah doesn't mention the dream. In the dream, verse number 11, he says, I had a dream. And I see the, the, mate, the goats mating with the, with the speckled and animals, speckled animals and all that. In my dream, the angel of God said to me, Yaakov, and I said, Hineni. And the next verse, lift up your eyes and see all the atudim olim al all the he goats which are mating with the flock. Akudim, nikudim, gudim, streaked, speckled, mottled. And the angel continues, I'm the God of Beitel, you took a vow, go back to the, your homeland. So the question is, here we have Hineni. But the question is what to make of this Hineni. On one hand, on one hand, we can say the Hineni is very significant because what the angel is, what the angel, what God is saying to Yaakov, it's time to be your own person. You have to leave love and behind and you have to establish yourself, you have to break from Lavan. And in running away from Lavan and breaking from Lavan, you are establishing yourself not as Lavan's slave or servant, not as beholden to Lavan, but you establish your own independence. So from that perspective, the Hineni is, is, a, is a true good Hineni. But from a different perspective, the Hineni of chapter 31 is problematic because the dream that Yaakov says he has in chapter 31 reminds us of the dream we know he had in chapter 28. In the dream of chapter 28, Jacob goes to sleep and what does he see? He sees a ladder or a staircase to heaven. 
in the staircase to heaven, what does Jacob see? He sees the angels of God going up the ladder and going down the ladder. Above the ladder is God. And God speaks to Jacob in the dream. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to protect you. And Jacob wakes up and he brings, a, he, he takes a, a vow to God. I will someday come back and build the house of God. That's the dream of chapter 28. And after 20 years with our, with our, with our beloved Lavan, what are Jacob's dreams? Not of angels, olim v'yardim, but rather atudim olim al-ratzon. He sees goats mating. That's his dream after 20 years. He was, what's he dreaming about? We debate it. He dreams about his bank accounts. Look at your bank accounts. I had a dream about my bank accounts. The same man who 20 years earlier had a dream about angels, looked up to the heavens. And now what are his dreams? So I call this the false Hineni. And actually the Hineni is here. What the Torah has done actually is actually when we, we, we encounter the Hineni, but upon reflection, we realize this can't be the real Hineni in chapter 31. He's going back home, but we wait for the Hineni. We turn the pages of the Torah and there's no Hineni. There's no Hineni. There's no, and then we come to chapter 46. And God appears once again in the vision of the night. Same way God appeared to Jacob in chapter 28, also in Beersheba. Yaakov, Yaakov, Bayomer Hineni. This is the real Hineni. And it takes place as he's about to go down into Egypt. The same way the first vision took place, he's about to leave the land to the house of Lavan. And we have God speaking to Jacob in chapter 46. And before I complete the um, next couple of verses, let me stop here for a moment and take comments or questions, if there are any. Um, I think Laszlo has his hand up, if you want to unmute yourself. Where is Laszlo? Yes. I'm not hearing anything. No, I'm I'm just wondering if there's a problem. If anyone else has a question, feel free to unmute and ask. Wendy Baker. Uh Wendy. Yes, Wendy. Hi, Wendy. Yeah. I'm I'm interested in all these places. Uh am I to assume Beit El is the site of the future uh Beit Hamigdash? That's an excellent question. That's an excellent question. If not, why not Beersheba? Beersheba is certainly in the Chumash, it's certainly not Beersheba. Beersheba is the place in which you read. Beersheba is the, sort of the edge of the land. It's to be done from Dan to Beersheba. It's the southern boundary. It draws them, it draws the individuals of the family to it, Beersheba. Right, so the the, the, the <coughs> The question really is about the relationship of Beit El on one hand yeah. to, because um, he leaves Beersheba, he's headed north, someplace in between Beersheba and the north is Beit El. Mm -hmm. The question is, what is the relationship between Beit El on one hand and the place of the Akedah, Haram Moriah on the other? Yeah. That's a very good question. It's certainly not Beersheba, but where exactly the relationship, yeah. to he me it sounds to like- away from it and find, follow the, yeah. Right, so it sounds like whether it's actually geographically the same place, there's no question that the Torah has linked up the revelation to Jacob um, in Beit El, what he calls Beit El, 
yeah. to the revelation to Abraham in the Akedah. And it does so, first of all, I mentioned one simple point, that in the book of Breshit, there's a word that's very significant, and the word is Hamakom, the place. Not Makom place, but the place, Hamakom. In the story of the, um, in the Akedah, Hamakom, the place, Abraham names the place, Hashem Yireh, it appears four times. In the case of Jacob and Beit Eo, it appears six times for a total of 10, which is a very significant point. And the point, when we studied that story, which is a very rich story, there's so much to say about it, mm -hmm. but I will say the following, that when you look at those two, those two stories, those two revelations, Abraham at the Akedah and Jacob at Beit Eo, which is parallel to the Akedah, whether it's geographically the same place, and I don't know, but they're two parallel stories. And what strikes us, I think, among other things, is this, that the Akedah, if you think about it, is the culmination of Abraham's career. It's the last time God speaks to Abraham. He has the, God has this test for Abraham, passes the test, the blessings to be transferred, perfect fulfillment. And it took a lifetime of Abraham's travels and wanderings to find this special place. When it comes to Jacob, it's exactly the opposite. He finds the place early on in his life, and he actually finds it by accident. He goes to sleep. The sun is setting. He goes to sleep. He has a dream. In the dream, he realizes, I'm sleeping in the gateway to heaven. <laughs> Hamakom, the chosen place. The point that we emphasize when we were studying those stories is that the task of Abraham in the Torah is to find the place. The task of Jacob is not to find the place. He finds it by accident, actually. But the struggles of Jacob are different, and it's very relevant to what we're reading now. The struggle of Jacob is to, uh, is to return. Jacob has to return. Jacob is about the Jew outside the land. That's his life. He's the Jew in exile who's trying to figure out some way to get back to where we once were, or better than we once were. And that's his struggle. And those are two different things. Each is not simple. To find a place is difficult. But then when you're out of it, to get back to it. Um, so that's Jacob's struggle. That's what we have over here as well with the Hineni. God speaks to you. Get the Hineni is at the very moment he's leaving. That's when he gets the revelation of Hineni. He's going into exile once again. And he knows what exile means. And that's the Yaakov, Yaakov, Yom Hineni. All right, let me take, we have a few, so we still have more time. And let me just see, we'll take another. Physically, yes, yes. Physically, uh, Jerusalem is a better place for the capital than Beersheba would have been. Yes, I mean, Beersheba's on the land. The land that they, what, that they acquired had a more central location That's right. than it would have in Beersheba. Right. Capitals are never at the edge of, of, of a state. Capitals are always towards the middle. I'll give you a simple example of it. New York State. Mm -hmm. I'm a proud resident of New York State. Albany. Obviously, New York State, the main thing in New York State, obviously, I may be prejudiced, but I think the main thing in New York State is New York City. Yeah. New York City is not the capital. The capital is Albany. Albany. New York City can't be the capital. It's at the very edge of the state. It's the very bottom of the state. No capitals are the, of the edges. The capital is in the center. Albany is pretty much in the center. It's not exactly mm -hmm. the center, but it's, the, but it's towards the center. That's where, that's where capitals are. So the capital would never be, Beersheba is actually one of those places that in Breshit anyway is liminal. Because on one hand, it's, Jake, it's Abraham's place. On the other hand, it says in Abraham dwelt in the land of the Philistines for many years. So what is Beersheba? 
it's very unclear what Be'er Sheva is. I have more to say about that, but let's yeah. leave, let's leave at this point, we'll leave it for now. Um, okay. I have a question. Yes, go ahead. Um, I have an intuitive understanding, but why does the covenant include Gerut, Avdut, and Inui? That's a wonderful question. Thank you. <laughs> and that is a big question because it's, let's put it this way. When you really think about it, but it's, by the way, since we're coming up on Pesach, I want to make another point about Gerut, Avdut, and Inui. It's not just that it includes Gerut, Avdut, and Inui, but when we studied it, I made an additional point, which is that the way it's presented in the Chumash to Abraham is that he takes three animals and he cuts them in pieces. And the fourth set of animals, the birds, are not cut. Then God says, Abraham, your descendants will be enslaved and marginalized and tortured, etc., for 400 years or whatever. Then it says, and the fourth generation shall return to the land. So the point you think about the fourth generation returning to the land, throughout the whole Bible, there's three, three and four is a big theme in the whole Bible. But obviously, when you think about the symbolism, of the animals, the three animals that are cut in pieces, the three animals that are cut in pieces, they're the ones that are going to suffer. That's the Geirut, Abdut, and Inui. The fourth generation, the birds that fly back to the land, they never suffered. So in other words, if the, the, the ones who suffer, say Jacob is, we think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let's put it in Breshi terms. Jacob is generation number three. Jacob undergoes Geirut and Abdut and Inui. He says that about himself, actually. But Jacob will not, but presumably the fourth generation of our Jacob's children. Or you look at the story of, of the Exodus. The story of the Exodus, Pesach's coming. Moses is a third generation sufferer. Started after, after Joseph and the brothers die. Levi died. His son is Kahat, generation one. Amram is two. Moses is three. Moses and his generation don't possess the land. They die in the desert. The next generation possesses the land, but they, they, but they never suffered. They were never in Egypt. So in other words, if you are a third generation Jew who understands the covenant, Jacob, you know you're going to suffer your whole life and you're never going to actually see the, 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 the actual return. That's for the next, you're setting up a redemption for the next generation that you won't directly participate in. So it's not just you suffer, but you suffer all the time in order that the next generation can enter into the land. So Jacob, when Pharaoh says to Jacob, how old are you? He gets to this after Pesach. And Jacob says to Pharaoh, not as old as you think. I've had a short life and a bad life. That's how Jacob describes his own life. So the point is that this is the covenant. These are the terms of the covenant. Most people I know would say, thank you, no thank you. They say what Asaph says, listen, who needs it? I go to Edom, I have my own land. Esav has phenomenal power, phenomenal wealth, kingship, it works. He's the poor Nebish in the book of Bereshit, but is he really? Well, from the standpoint of the Torah, yes, because he's not covenantal. But what does covenantal mean? It means you, there's a big price to be paid. And my point, the main point I'm emphasizing today is, it's my understanding of it, which is that Jacob goes down to Egypt understanding what actually what actually awaits him because he experienced it once before he knows what awaits him and we're not going to get to that now unfortunately because we don't have the time to demonstrate it we get to it but yes this is the nature now the question is what is that about so i'll give you one answer 
I'll give you one answer, maybe the better answers, but this is one way to understand it, that the going into Egypt and the suffering and the enslavement and the persecution and the marginalization is preliminary to what the Torah says, what happens when you do leave. What the Torah emphasizes when you leave Egypt and you, let, you set up your own society, you should not forget your own experience. You have to love the stranger. Why do you have to love the stranger? Because you were strangers of the land of Egypt. So you know what it means to be a stranger, an outsider. And what the Torah is saying is something else, which I believe to be true. There's certain things in life that only people who experience it can understand. You can't, the outsider can't understand it actually. There's no way to understand it. You try to understand it, you do the best you can, but you're not living in the other person's shoes. You have, you're not, that's not who you are. And the degree to which these things, a certain situation, difficult situations in life, I don't want to get into it, but only someone who's been through it could possibly understand what it, what it entails. It's not possible otherwise. And that's in the point of the finish. In contrast to Adam and Eve, who had an ideal existence, but they didn't get it, so to speak. Yeah, but the question is, is that really the story of the Chumash? That's a good question. In other words, that so-called ideal existence, does the Chumash really think that we're going to stay in the Garden of Eden? Or is that a setup to describe, or by, by contrast, to describe the world in which we do live? And it, it's, it's difficulties. I see that more as a contrast. It's not really the Garden. We're not going to be in the Garden. The Garden is a place of a certain innocence to the Garden, but we're not innocent. I mean, we try to maintain some sense of innocence, I would hope, but some childlike innocence. Um, in the Chumash, the child is somewhat innocent, I think, for the most part. But um, yeah, but I mean, but it's, you know, but we're living in the world in which we live, world of, there's a lot of darkness and a lot of uh, deception and a lot of hiddenness and all that. And how do you live in such a world is the question. But, you know, there's, when you leave Eden, you lose something. But on the other hand, it's, it's, it's not the world in which we live. And the Chumash sets up a contrast. So it's not that they could actually remain in the Garden of Eden. You know what I mean? And it's not a world of responsibility. We have one, we have one thing we can't do. But in the world in which we live, and everything else is quick, do whatever you want, basically. Just not one thing. And we live in a world of difficult choices. And, and we also live in a world, we, we have knowledge. So we're expected to be able to make good choices for the most part. So let's... That's the story, but it's, you know, it's very real, but um, that is the covenant. And I'll tell you one last thing before we have to stop. Next time we will continue with this. We only did two verses today, but it's um, get a sense of the power of the Chumash. I mean, what I love about Devorah's interpretation is you're, you're waiting for this Hineni to come. <laughs> the book's coming to an end. And in chapter 46, there it is. Jacob finally says Hineni and to, to the God of Isaac, he says it. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's rather remarkable. So anyway, um, okay, so what do we, um, I had one more thing I wanted to say over here and I'm blocking what I had in mind. Let me think one second. So we do have a class next week? No, next week there's no, after Pesach. I see. Only, only after Pesach. This is the last class that we have. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, this is the last class that we have for now. We'll continue after Pesach with these, the chapter 46 once again. And um, I'll say, yeah, I'll say one thing. I will say one story and I'll end with this. You know, there are people who have studied with me for a few years and the people that have studied with me for 30 years, some even a little more than 30 years. Now remember, 
many years ago, I was talking about this game with Avdatuninu, you know, maybe in the context of the Haggadah, I've spoken about it several times. It's pretty central to the book. And someone stopped me in the class. I forget who it was. And she says, one second, are you telling me that the covenant involves this kind of suffering and marginalization? And not only that, you don't even see the fruits of it yourself. You sort of live on faith. And I said, so let me ask you a question. I know you about 30 years. You were regular in this class for 30 years. I must have made this point at least half a dozen times about the covenant. And my question is, why are you asking the question now? Why didn't you ask it 20 years ago? But I'll tell you why you didn't ask it 20 years ago. I don't know you, I don't know you that well. But here's what I do know. Sometimes you hear the same thing 50 times. And one day you ask a question, you know why? Not because I said anything different, but because you're in a different place. And that's the truth of it. The truth is that we are very, we're in different places in our life. And sometimes the many things that we hear, it doesn't really get to us. We hear the words, but it doesn't really, we don't really connect to it. And then something happens in your life and suddenly you hear different, the same message that we've heard so many times, but suddenly we, we, we actually hear it differently. And that's, you know, and the messages are always there. But the question is where we, where we, where we, where we are. The trick is trying to put ourselves in a place where we can hear a lot of different things. That's, that's really the trick, you know? And Not that's to what extent we can control this. What? That's Hineni. Exactly. That exactly is Hineni. I'm here to whatever you, I'm willing to hear whatever you have to say. Whether I agree, whether I disagree, when it comes to God's command, we accept it. But the point is to be in a place where actually the first step is to be able to actually hear what the other person is saying. You know, we're living, I keep thinking about the situation in Israel. And I always ask myself, are people actually listening to anybody else? Are we actually hearing the other side? There's two sides to everything. Are we hearing both sides? Or are we so determined with the past that we don't even hear it? Forget about the response. We're not even hearing it. So that's the Hineni, to be able to hear the words and to be able to be in a place where can we hear it and then respond and try to see how it can speak to us, how it doesn't speak to us, etc. That's the trick in the study of Torah. Anyway, I wish all of you very Silva, yes. can, I, can I ask my question that was uh, an act earlier? Uh, yeah, go ahead. I, I, I don't know uh, this fully uh, uh, by looking at everything, but I think that uh, the expression Bemara uh, as a as that the dream came to him in Bemara is an unusual expression for a dream. Is it unusual? Uh, uh, is it unusual? It's not. It's not that common. Let me just see what it says in with, with the covenant in fifteen. The language over there is there's um, Bemachazeh, similar to Mara Machazeh. But we'd have to see. Um, it's not that common, okay? That's yeah. for sure. So, uh, when we were looking at uh, uh, the story of uh, uh, Yitzchok's uh, uh, giving the blessing, uh, there the same root expression of vision uh, appears uh, so that he could see. And I wonder if the Torah is giving us a, a signpost to say, uh, compare these two experiences, this dream, to that okay, I'll say, I'll, let me say, exactly uh, in line yes. with what you said. Yes, we, we will encounter this after Pesach. There's actually a direct, a direct connection of Jacob 
and Yitzchak will come up later on, where the two are actually very parallel. I did want to, and we'll get to that, where the two stories are identical, but opposite stories later on in the Chumash, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, I want to come back to one point that I mentioned at the beginning, that I suggested that the sacrifices that he brings are to enable the revelation to take place. Jacob is looking for revelation. He's about to leave the land. He knows it's problematic. He wants to see his son, and he wants to understand what, it, what this entails. And God will say to him, basically, we'll get to this next time we meet, which is, you're not going down to meet your son, Joseph. That's not why you're going down. You, you will meet him, but not for the reason you think. To meet him, to say hello, to see a long-lost son, a long-lost friend, or whatever, there are other reasons to go down, and Jacob hears it, and Jacob accepts it. So he he already accepted. He said he named He named yeah. means whatever you say, I'm going to do. Tell me, tell me, tell me what you expect of me. And Yaakov will get the response in the next couple of verses, which is where we'll pick up after when we resume. Anyway, I did want to wish Thank everybody Chag Sameach. God bless you. You can email me, um, dsober at drisha.org. Wish you all God the best. Him. Thank you for a wonderful term. Thank you so much, Rabbi Silber. We have a lot of messages of thanks for this class in the chat. Um, so thank you for this incredible Zman. And thank you to all our participants for your amazing comments and questions throughout the Zman. It's been really lovely to hear like everyone's contributions. Um, uh, so we'll be taking a break for a few weeks over Pesach, but then we will be back with this class after Pesach. Fear not, we will get to the end of Genesis. Um, if you are free next Sunday, we won't be having this class, but Miss Adina Pollen will be doing a workshop for Drisha where we'll create storytelling objects to bring with us to the Seder. This is for people of all ages, but it would be an especially great activity to do with your children, grandchildren, or great-grandchildren, if you are so blessed. That will be at 12.30 p.m. Eastern time. You can learn more about that and register for that class and other classes at drisha.org. Um, and this is a very exciting announcement. Um, our NYC Summer Kollel programs are now open for application. I myself uh, am an alumna of the Drisha Summer Kollel, and it's really an incredible learning experience. The quality of teaching, the joy of learning, the amazing people you meet. Um, so if you have some time in June or July to dedicate to some learning, I highly, highly recommend it. And you can look for more information at kollel.drisha.org. Um, so wishing you all uh, a happy and kosher Pesach. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.